Hello, hello, lovely people, fans of the best bloody show on television. Whether you're across the pond or just across the river, welcome in to By Order of the Peaky Blinders, where Josh and I break down every single episode of the 1920s family gang drama on Netflix or BBC. I'm your host, Daniel Gilman. And I'm Josh Levy. This is episode three of the first season. It first aired back in 2013 on BBC and then in 2014 on Netflix. If you're watching for the first time, don't worry. This is a spoiler-free podcast, and if you are, like my friend Josh here, I have a feeling this third episode hooked you big time. This episode got me hooked. I remember vividly texting you as we'll break down what happened. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and I can't wait to break this episode down. Yeah, but before we jump into it, let's take a second and have you guys all at home like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We interact with the fans, we take some feedback, we say it on air. You can follow us on Twitter and send some feedback there at By Order of Peaky. Make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you're listening. And remember, you could send us that feedback that we will read on air via email at bootpeakyblinders at gmail.com. We had two corrections last episode. It doesn't look like we messed anything up, Josh, which is a big win. We got some awesome messages of support on Facebook and Reddit. And uh, and I got a nice little tidbit of information, Josh. It's Killian. It's 100% Killian Murphy. The fact that we had a writer put it in as Cillian is only because the S or C in Gaelic is actually a K sound. Otis tells us that. And so it's definitely Killian Murphy, and Killian Murphy kills it. As I uh, heard him do an interview on Twitter from a few years ago, I was reading back on that, and he just gives some tidbits that I can provide to you all episode long. So let's dive in. Episode 3 titled as such. Don't worry. Don't worry, guys. They're going to start naming the episodes in Season 4. So we'll expect Season 5 to be named as well. This episode is written by The Stephen Knight, directed by Otto Bathurst. His final episode after a brilliant start to the series. I teased last episode that Mr. Bathurst directed a Black Mirror episode, which is another outstanding Netflix show. You watch that show, Josh? Love Black Mirror, big Black Mirror fan. Yeah, it wasn't one of my favorites, the one that Otto Bathurst directed. It was, in fact, the the pilot episode, maybe the weirdest episode there is, where the Prime Minister has to decide between a girl's life or fucking a pig. So that's uh, that's Otto Bathurst's background in, uh, in TV shows, but I think he hit it out of the park here with this episode. The description reads, Thomas schemes to get closer to Billy Kimba at the Cheltenham races. And he considers an offer from IRA sympathizers to buy his stolen guns. Not too spoily on this one, Josh. Still would rather not have a description. I mean, there's just I'm not I'm not reading the description and saying, oh wow, I'm more excited to watch this episode, you know? Like let's just get into the episode. I don't I don't need any any type of depiction of what's going to go on. Yeah, it's always nice to look in hindsight, though. Just a little bit of a recap of that episode. Yeah. We start off with a very literal depiction of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds lyric as Tommy takes a little walk to the edge of town. Take a little walk to the edge of town. He sees dozen of shirtless, (laughs) dirty men. (laughs) He sees those shirtless, dirty men slaving away. Tommy, of course, just dressed to the nines. And, uh, we see to the left some welding metal, to the right some uh, burning metal, 
as some blacksmiths try to shape it just right. The reflection of the fires is really cool. I wanted to point it out. You can see it in the window of the garrison. A bit of an iconic look there with a pair of Clydesdales sitting outside. Tommy walks in, asks Grace for whiskey, and then he specifies that he wants Irish whiskey, which is going to come into factor here because he's going to sit down with a pair of IRA members. Grace makes sure that Tommy knows that Grace is a bit of a negotiator because before Tommy sits down, she strongholds him for a little bit more money, a few more shillings, so that she can can get a pretty dress for the Cheltenham races. And Josh, what does Tommy say? Tommy, in his Tommy Shelby way, just drops the... I don't pay for suits. My suits are on the house or the house burns down. Yeah, Grace thought she was getting clever because she was going to say, well, how much is your suit? Because I'm only getting a few coins for my dress. But as Tommy mentioned, and our Tommy impersonator here mentioned, Tommy don't pay for no suits. So now we get this meeting with a drunken IRA member and a bit of a uh, a well-framed man on the right side. The IRA wants the guns, obviously. As Grace eavesdrops and finds out their base is the Black Swan Pub. So that's important, as we'll find out in a little bit. Certain music seems to always be paired with Freddie Thorne as we quickly turn over to him and we get that solemn tune. It's like, it's almost depressing music and it goes with the communists everywhere he goes, Josh. But it's a happy sight because we get to see the wedding of Ada and Freddie. Ada becomes a thorn as she just continues to show her crazy side running through Small Heath in her wedding dress saying she dared herself to go through her brother's territory, a bit of a fuck you to Tommy. Something that I've realized three episodes, two or two and a quarter episode, whatever you want to call it in at this point, is that, yeah, it's really depressing. Like, whenever anything is around Freddy, I feel like the screen just turns, like, dark, more black and white when Freddy's on the screen. And, yeah, Ada, Ada's wild now. That's that's all I got to say. She's really sticking the middle finger to Tommy. She, she, she's, she's the biggest of Tommy's problems. Now we get to see who I think pretty much stole the show in this episode. A bit of an underrated character, but I always like to find some underrated characters. It's Sergeant Moss, the uh, second in command to the inspector as him and the inspector talk. I do want to give that praise to Tony Pitts, who plays a fantastic character here. He's been outstanding, that hard-nosed, but kind of lovable coppa who kind of has his heart in the right spot, his head is, you know, a little bit set straight. He doesn't want the inspector to do too many things that would compromise his loyalty to the crown. So we find out that Grace does pass along the intel about the Black Swan Pub and the IRA conspirators. Moss says that it was just a bunch of drunken singers, but no. The inspector knows better, obviously trusting Grace more, even though he does let it slip that he has a female operative because the inspector wants to brag about his gem in the rough, saying that a, spe- a female operative has proven more useful than any of those lumps of men in uniform. And you know what happens next, Josh? We should take a shot for every time someone makes a remark about the inspector not fighting in France, because Moss might make it an even 20 about the fact that Campbell didn't serve in France. I'm starting to understand why people were mad at Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali. The inspector here has the worst comeback of all time. He literally just says, they're called operatives, not spies. Like, that's that's what you're going to say after Inspector Moss just comes at you like that and just digs you. Losing, losing a lot of respect for the Inspector right now, Mr. Pringles. Yeah, this is a tough episode for, for the Pringles man. He does also maybe get a dig back, but he says it under his breath. He goes, I serve every single day. Like, yeah, but 
you didn't serve in the war. Oh, yeah. Whatever helps you sleep at night, Inspector. Yeah, now we're going to cut over to the Black Swan Inn, where Grace tracks down one of the IRA members from that meeting. She's a pretty good spy, until she isn't, because her sleuthing skills are not the best. And even this drunken idiot who's stumbling and having a tough time finding a place to pee, his name, according to the subtitles, is Ryan. Ryan gets wind of this stalking operative, grabs her by the neck, pushes her up against the wall, and threatens to take her in, knowing that he saw her at the garrison. But you know what? Grace, even with a gun pushed against her face, gets a piece of her gun, shoots him from inside her purse, and kills the IRA operative with the gun that Campbell gave her. Grace runs away, but not before we see someone in the shadows get a good look at her. This is going to change a lot of things here now that we've uh, we've seen one of our main characters kind of get shaken to the core with a murder. Here, I just, it was, it was crazy to see that Grace got into this situation because you thought things were just going to go well for her. And, you know, because you're just pulling for her and you're always like, no, don't do this. Don't do this. And we'll see what happens. But also, as you pointed out, where in the episode do they mention that this guy's name is Ryan? Like, I understand the subtitles say it, but there was no mention of his name as Ryan. So, hey, so 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 Stephen Knight was just like, I'm going to name him Ryan and just put it on the subtitles. Just 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 something that I, that, that I found funny. Yeah, I'm just trying to give the people more information here. Next, we see Polly and Tommy have a conversation. Polly's always a little extra careful around Tommy. You could tell that he's different since he's been back from the war. So the first thing she asks is if he's armed. And once he admits he's not armed, she tells him of Freddie and Ada's wedding and, which is worse probably, the fact that they are not leaving town. This is obviously going to put a huge wrinkle in Tommy's plan with the inspector, that deal they made at the tea house last episode, because Tommy probably didn't have an issue with them getting married. In fact, he was the one that sent the letter to Freddie telling him to come back and grab Ada, but he thought they were going to leave town. And then Polly, Polly's like, what do you mean? What deal? And this is Josh. This is when we see Polly get a little mad. Yeah, Tommy doesn't tell and Polly the plan. And she, you know that, that look on her face when she's pissed, which is like 95% of the time. And she, in her Polly way, says, what happened to family votes? What happened to meetings? And then she goes on to say, if you let me deal with Ada, it'll end in peace. And then we get a nice pause. And then she goes, Christ knows you've had your fill of wool. And this is just a very powerful line. It just reiterates. I, I think like there's been at, at least like 40 lines throughout these two and a quarter episodes about how Tommy's had his fill of war. And there's, I, I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to find out something more along the line. Like, like we keep on getting these flashbacks, but Tommy must have had the worst experience at the war. And it's something, something more must have happened than him just fighting in the war. Yeah, and something tells me that he was a normal person before the war. And, and that's all I'm really going to talk about there because cause it feels like, and it happens a lot, Josh, and we see it in movies and it's depicted very well, but these people, they thrived in wartime. So it's almost like they try to put their lives back into that situation. And it feels like Tommy reaches out and tries to cause havoc every chance he gets. And speaking of havoc, we see Grace start to stir up a little bit for herself. She's obviously mentally torn about the situation. She had to shoot a man. She gets sloshed. Absolutely hammered. Probably the first time we see Grace get drunk. She throws up a ton. She smokes for the first time on screen. 
She does get a look at her red dress and it probably makes her smile for a second, but that's it for a quick scene for Grace. Then we see Moss and Moss is not done with his little bit of sarcasm with his boss, the inspector. He tells him about the dead man at the pub and the fact that it was the pub that the operative, quote unquote, female operative, told him about. Can't be a coincidence. And the fact that a woman there saw someone fleeing and the fact that it was a woman seen fleeing. So I say it very particularly because Moss says this very, very facetiously to Campbell. And then Moss gets straight up honest with him and says, Boss, is there a shoot to kill policy like there was in Belfast? But Campbell is in denial. He's trying to deny this and say, no, no, no. The Republicans, they, they're crazy. The IRA probably killed each other and had enough of that conversation. Yeah, and I actually want to correct myself here because I said it was earlier when Campbell said that he the, the, op, the, the operative's not spies line, but it was actually here. You know, we're not perfect, as we said. So I'm going to go ahead and correct myself before one of you peaky heads uh, corrects me. And it's here when Inspector Moss is walking out of the door and he goes, it's called operatives, not spies. And it's kind of like, you know, he kind of pictures Grace in that light. No, no way Grace would be a spy. She's an operative. It's kind of, the, kind of the same thing to me. I think being a spy sounds cooler, but to each its own. We get a lot of quick scenes this episode, obviously just bouncing from Polly and Tommy to Grace quickly to Moss and Campbell. Now we quickly go over and see Polly in this tiny apartment where Freddie and Ada are living. Polly hands Freddie 200 pounds and a ticket to leave the country. He wants to stay. Both of the women want a honeymoon that would last forever. And then we get a little bit of back and forth here. I love these little quick Polly digs. Freddie asks her if she thinks he can't handle Tommy. And she says, you can't. I'm having trouble these days and I'm twice the man you are. Freddie uh, probably didn't feel too hot there after uh, Aunt Paul dropped that dig. And Freddie just, Freddie is so damn stubborn. It's insane. Like, Freddie, man, just, 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 you know, you, you know, you can't mess with Aunt Paul. And so I'm just loving how Aunt Paul is standing up to Freddie there. And then, yeah, Ada, Ada just drops in. She goes, America, Freddie. They've already had the revolution. You won't have to bother. And you kind of think things things could be solved if they just went to America. Oh, things would be different. Now we go back to the fancy art museum as we have Campbell lecturing Grace. He clearly knows that it was her who shot the IRA man. And I think he's going to blame that history, the fact that the IRA killed Grace's father for this shooting. He shows a lot of sympathy, but at the same time, he's really worried about her. He drops a very, very important line here and says, killing a Finian man doesn't concern me. Your welfare does. And he pauses just, just like we saw in this episode with a different character and says, killing a man affects the heart. And so we see compassion towards, towards Grace as a, as a father figure at this point. And it kind of makes sense. You know, Grace doesn't seem like she can handle killing a man as she got sloshed and, was thrown up everywhere, and it really does, could, take a, could, could take a toll on her. We then get our first real meaty scene of the episode as we actually find out the Chinese man's name from that opening scene of the pilot with the horse and the little Chinese girl. His name is Mr. Zhang. So Mr. Zhang finds Tommy wandering into his dry cleaning business, looking to see what suit Billy Kimba is going to wear. Billy Kimba! 
and Zhang shoos away all the others, which is a bit of a theme we're seeing when Billy and Tommy are in a room together. The Lees, according to Tommy, are planning to rob Kimber's bookies at Cheltenham, but Kimba is not worried, and all he says is, I'm going to wave at you from my box, which is a bit of a big dick humble brag there, Josh, and he tells him to bring that pretty barmaid. And Tommy Shelby, ready for it, ready to show it off, already invited, kind of smirks, kind of smirks, and I just love it. You could tell the whole episode was set for Grace to meet up with Billy Kimba, because Tommy said, you're going to match his handkerchief, or his tie, or something, and she says, who's, and obviously he's talking about Billy. Now we go back to a scene that we saw in the pilot, as Freddy's leading another communist meeting. They're at the BSA here, okay? And I did a little research into this. I didn't know where they were at in that first episode we were doing, but it turns out that the strike and a lot of this turmoil is happening at the Birmingham Small Arms Company, which is the same place that Tommy robbed the guns from. So they're having that meeting at the BSA. He gets them ready to strike, as the inspector won't let people meet in groups of more than three. Feels a little similar to a, uh, a, maybe a bit of a... uh, a dictator regime there and then uh tommy goes looking for freddie by looking for ready for this quote the only girl in birmingham with four inch heels which is how he's gonna look for ada i love that line i just did the rewatch in this episode and tommy tommy smiles on this episode you know he's 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 really feeling himself maybe it's foreshadowing that he thinks that there's something that's gonna happen for for the business but in his defense, there probably aren't very many uh, females walking around with four-inch heels. Probably not smart of Ada. Ada really doesn't care. She's just like, I'm doing my thing, and no one's going to stop me. And kind of, uh, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. No, it's back to that princess mentality. And um, we're going to have to see if it works out for her as we jump over to see another problem for Tommy. You mentioned he's smiling. This was an episode where he saw quite a few problems because... According to John, Arthur's got the Flanders blues again. Because a lot of that PTSD from the war, the Flanders blues, refers to Flanders Field, which was a bit of a slang, a popular name for battlegrounds in France during that great war. So Tommy has to meet with him in the church and see if he could talk Arthur down from a bit of a ledge here. And the first thing he says, he sits down in this, in this church that we see a lot of conversations happening, and he immediately goes... What is bloody wrong, Arthur? And he's he's not happy. He's not he's not ready for it. And Arthur just goes on about he can't get anything right. He continually says, I don't know the answer to anything. People are asking me questions. Oh, your Ada got married. Oh, he didn't know about it. Oh, where is she staying right now? He doesn't know. And then the big one is, oh, I heard you guys robbed the BSA of guns. And he freaks out. And Josh we see Arthur go to a next level of angry here with Tommy. Arthur goes batshit, and he goes, and you see kind of spit flying around, his hair is disheveled, and he goes, what bloody guns, Tommy? And Tommy, he has a response for everything. He's so ready for everything, it's insane. I'm like, how? And without a flinch, he goes, he grabs him by the face, and he goes, we had some bloody luck, Arthur. We got lucky. They fell in our laps. And he automatically has Arthur convinced. It's great. And and Paul Anderson and Killian Murphy have such a fantastic chemistry that it's it's so perfect. 
And it's funny because I, obviously I recognized Paul Anderson right when I saw the first episode because Sherlock Holmes is like one of my favorite movies. And he was he was a bit of a, not a main character, but he was one of the side characters in that film a few years ago. And he's great. Arthur has to be, in my opinion, I think he is the best actor on the show. And you'll see a lot more as the seasons progress. But so far, he's doing a great job. And Tommy is ready. Tommy's got the surprise for Arthur. He brings him straight to the garrison. And Josh, he bought the bloody garrison. He goes, everything is for sale to us, Arthur. But really, the reason is Tommy needs the pub to launder some money. But there's a funny little back and forth here between Tommy and Arthur. Arthur, once again, is so helpless. Have some confidence in yourself, Arthur. Because he sells, he tells Tommy that he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to run it. And Tommy has a Tommy Shelby response, and he tells Arthur, you spend two-thirds of your life some poops. You know what to do. Pour it. Drink it. And, the, and right away, Arthur's convinced. He's like, you're bloody right. He didn't actually say that, but, you know, that was happening in his head. No, he did say, he's like, am I, am I allowed to drink it? And Tommy's like, you could do whatever you bloody want. <laughs> and then Tommy walks out of the garrison, and I thought it was incredible because he's literally walking on ash and there's coal littered all around it's not grass in small heath it's just coal that you're walking on, on the ground but yet his suit and his shoes stay impeccably clean as he walks and finds out that his tires are punctured just a mini scene here but one that shows that sergeant moss is still on top of things and the inspector is aware that freddie thorne is still there breaking up you know unions making sure that strikes are continually running at the bsa and breaking the deal between Campbell and Tommy. And so if Tommy does not turn in Freddie Thorne, they will, the coppers, will pick up Ada, and she might go to jail for up to five years. So there's the ultimatum that Moss bets Tommy with and essentially says, oh, what a family you've got. I heard they got married. Bet you can't wait till Christmas. This is a dig at Tommy and... I find it funny how Tommy sees his tires punctured and he's just like, eh, just another day. You know, someone's coming after me. It's just like nothing phases him and he's got someone up his sleeve probably coming up. Things do get a little tense in the next 20 seconds because before anything really happens, we know Tommy's going to go after Freddie. We don't know how aggressively, but Ada seems to think that is going to be intense because she bursts into the garrison. She looks to Grace. These two have never had a conversation before and all of a sudden she's confiding in this barmaid worried about Tommy and Freddie, how they're going to kill each other. And you know what? They find each other quite quickly. They go to a spot that they used to hang out in, looking over the cut, and Tommy makes a joke about saying, do you remember, Freddie, when we used to dive and see if we can swim from one end to the other? But Freddie's not really having any of his, uh, any of his bullshit. He puts a gun up to Thomas Shelby's head. And I'll tell you, I, I had a moment here where I'm thinking this would be a show, similar to Game of Thrones, that it could kill a main character. I mean, it really could. And, you know, we interwove Grace trying to settle down Ada and the two mates from school talking. Freddie throws the 200 pounds, and that's that's when I kind of eased up a little bit. There was no reason for him to throw him the money and then kill him. Freddie asks and basically uses his power here to say, all right, I've got a gun to your head. I'm going to buy these guns. I'm going to help the communists with these guns. Tommy doesn't answer him, still wondering, do you think we could jump into the cut now and do what we did as kids? And all Tommy does to do this is to have Freddy spend one second looking at the water so he can knock him to the ground and pull a gun on him. 
and Josh, we had a tense little Mexican standoff here because Tommy's gun is pointing at Freddy. Freddy's gun is pointing at Tommy. But I'll tell you, I wasn't as worried as I was, you know, 45 seconds ago. This is a classic scene where two guys are pointing guns at each other and you just know that neither of them is going to pull the trigger. Like, this isn't one of those mid, like, old westerns where everyone, you know, every, like, you know that, whatever that is, where you walk, you walk away and you turn around and shoot each other. Like, that's, that's the only situation where that would happen. You knew it wasn't happening. I also don't think that Freddy has the balls or the audacity to kill Tommy. I, I don't think he has it in him. I think deep down there still is a love for Tommy. And he knows that it would, it would upset Ada too. So, and, and he said it in the pilot. He said, I'm hoping one day I can fight beside Tommy again. But uh, I'm not sure if it's going to happen this episode because Tommy really thinks in his soul that Freddy only impregnated Ada to fuck with the Shelbys. And he only wants to be a Shelby so that he can get those guns and so he can get that money and help his cause. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you Mr. Haircut here, Josh, I think he redeems himself because he he gives a fucking incredibly passionate, convincing love sentiment here saying, you really believe that, don't you, Tommy? I love your sister. I've loved her since I was 12 and she was nine. And I'm like, oh, man, Tom, there's no way Tommy can shoot him now because he not only saved his life, he loves his sister. But the Grinch comes back out and Thomas Shelby he says, this marriage will not stand. As Freddie says, do you even know the word love? And that was that was a heartbreaking scene for both of them. Did you uh, did you shed a tear, Daniel? Did you? I, I didn't. I didn't, but I it was more of a like happy awe. It was like, oh, they're in love. Because remember, we talked about this in the first episode, and I wasn't sure if Freddie was really in love with Ada. You were. You thought so. I wasn't so sure. But now I've come around. And uh, I think Tommy's... Tommy's in a little bit of shambles here because anytime we get a quick cut to him smoking opium and getting high, we know that he's had a tough day. And this is one of the tougher days for Tommy Shelby. Yeah, and he even walks in right before the scene, just like very quick turn away where he storms in and sees Aunt Paul and kind of reveals that that because Freddie and whatever Aunt Paul got them in, the fact that Ada's now on the arrest warrant. And he storms in, pissed off, kind of like a I told you so, and says, that's where your compassion will get you, Paul. And Paul's like, yep, I fucked up. But then it immediately pans to the scene of Tommy being high and sleeping and dreaming, as you just mentioned. They're powerful. He's like delirious, his head spinning. The smoke is going really slow all over the room. And the scene is really powerful. And we do get a lot from this next dream sequence because we've been getting little tiny cuts of just the climax of the fight between the Germans and these British guys that we've come to know and love with Danny and Freddie and Tommy. So we see them now descending into the cave. So we see the beginning of the scene. It's Danny, Freddie, and Tommy. They can actually, and we can actually hear the Germans whispering on the other side of the wall. And I can only imagine half of the anticipation that it would bring, where you know that you are just a foot away from the enemy, yet neither of you guys can see each other or kill each other yet. And then all of a sudden, bam, one breaks through, and now we get to see the crazed scene from the last few episodes. It looks like, and I'll tell you this, I think I solved this, this riddle. I think Freddy yells out Tommy's name, pushes him, and takes a bullet for Tommy. That's the way, that's how it looked to me. It's still not 100% sure Someone is stabbed, 
We don't know who, just like last episode. It's really dark. Everyone's face kind of looks the same. Everyone's hair is the exact same, you know, the buzz cut. So even Tommy looks just like Danny for a second. I can't really tell. And then we get to see Danny because he's banging at the door as Tommy's trying to hide all of the opium paraphernalia. And Danny's uh, reporting for service. We see the two of them meet up for the first time since the fake murder. Whizbang reporting for service. I just love that name, Whizbang. It just if if it really fits Danny perfectly. And going back to that scene, I don't I didn't see a gunshot. I don't I don't know. Maybe you're right, but I I I think I only saw a stab. Really tough to see. Maybe it's open to our interpretation. But when I was when I heard the little the when they were trying to push through the wall, you, you it was like four different bangs like on the wall and you're like what the hell is going on? Like, in hindsight, you're like, oh, yeah, they're pushing through. But I didn't think they were going to push through the wall, and I was stressed. I was stressed out, man. Like, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, this next one was this was, an, this was an Emmy scene for Killian Murphy because Danny reports that the rumor in London is that the blinders were the ones who shot the IRA man, the one that Grace shot. Tommy wants to parlay now because there's a big, big misunderstanding. Tommy does not want any beef with the IRA. Then Danny follows it up by... Uh, Basically calling Tommy out, saying, you know, you've been through a lot, Tommy, the whiskey, the smoke. Tommy's like, what smoke? Danny's like, I smell it, man. I've used it before. I call it my sweetheart. It eases the head pain. And then Danny, he says, man, we got the worst job. And we volunteered for it. So I'm starting to learn, and I'm guessing we're going to learn a lot more, as you mentioned, about their time in the war. Because it doesn't really get worse than than crawling around dirty caves, having to deal with people in hand-to-hand combat. And this is where this is where Tommy unleashes a little bit of a uh, a fantastic acting monologue. Here's a little bit of it. He goes, Sometimes I listen to the shovels and the picks against the wall there. I pray the sun will come up at the curtains before they break through. Sometimes the sun beats them. But mostly, mostly the shovels beat the sun. And we hear, we literally hear picking and scraping. And I had goosebumps. It was some deep shit, Josh. As I just mentioned, it's really heavy. I was I was stressing out. And Tommy has like three different tones of voice. And this is the one where he like really like his his voice like drops deep down and it's almost like he's he's whispering. And this is a this is a heavy line. This is a heavy few lines. And it parlays quickly right into a bit of a romantic scene because we're back at the garrison. Grace is using her spy operative skills to prod Tommy for more information. And Tommy almost gives up some information here. He nearly starts talking, but he doesn't quite trust her just yet. So he stays quiet, talks about the race coming up, and we get this quiet melody of a piano leading up into a sensual scene of both Grace and Tommy getting dressed, getting ready for Cheltenham, which we know is coming up. And Grace, Josh, Grace is looking like a snack putting on that red dress. We get to see her in some undergarments. We get to see her putting on the dress. I'm uh, going to stop now, but we do get to see her slip a gun into her purse just so she's prepared. Sus. That's all I got to say. Very, very sus of Grace to do that. So we, we cut right to Charlie Strong. And I feel like this entire season so far, all we've seen is Uncle Charlie just nagging. Nagging, nagging. He's like, Tommy, 
I don't think you're going to make it back alive. This car doesn't fit enough people for you to make it back alive. Tommy's trying to prepare for the race, not giving one shit to what his uncle was saying. And that's just their theme. I think that's just their, their, their chemistry and their relationship at this point. So Tommy just leaves Charlie in the dust. He asks Curly about how the car is going to run. And Curly mentions that he can't really talk to cars like he can with horses. They don't have a heart. And I do want to mention that in one of the interviews I was listening to of Stephen Knight, he mentioned that Curly is based off of a real person. He was Stephen Knight's great uncle, who was the same exact person. Curly worked for Charlie Strong, who's also based off of a real person who worked in the stables down in Birmingham. So that was really cool to learn. So now we learn that John and Arthur are rallying the troops. Grace and Tommy are on their way to the races. And the Lees are about to get a walloping from the Peaky Blondes, who are not going to steal the money. We don't know what's going to happen with it yet, but we know they're not going to steal the money. Now we fast forward to the racetracks, and anytime something gets built up for multiple episodes, it's awesome to watch it come through. We're at the racetrack, and Tommy and Grace have a little bit of a pre-scene here before things get wild. It's a little bit of fun. They sneak in through the back way. Tommy wants to stay out of trouble. He mentions he can't stand petty criminals, and the fact that they're going back the back way means that they have to uh, they have to do a little bit of fibbing. Grace has to be Lady Sarah Duggan of Kanamata and mention that Tommy is Prussian so he doesn't have to speak a word of English. Tommy wants Grace to earn her three quid, and she does, and they get through. And this begins, Josh, the final act of this episode, and Stephen Knight, Otto Bathurst have done a fantastic job. Once I see that there's like 20 minutes left in the episode, things really start to gear up. This is the moment where I think I texted you and well, not this exact moment, but what's about to unfold is when I texted you, OMG, 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 like literally OMG, OMG, OMG. And you were like, I know. And I'm really excited to break this part down. Then they get over to the dance floor. Tommy mentions that he likes the garrison better, but it's a really fancy old fashioned band playing. Everyone's dancing. Tommy asks Grace to dance. First, he says, do you dance? She says, if I'm asked properly. So Tommy asks her properly. Everyone at home rejoices because the two of them get to dance. But it's only for a little bit that it's real dancing because most of the time Tommy's more focused on showing off that prized barmaid to Billy Kimba. But before they meet up with Billy, we get a quick cut to the Lees robbing some bookies in the bathroom and then quickly Erasmus Lee getting a... Uh, a pouncing on by John and Arthur as they take the money back and Arthur uses the razor blade in his cap to cut off a piece of the Lee man's ear. Whew. Weird, weird, uh, weird stuff going on here, Josh. Very important question. When John is fucking up some people, does he keep the toothpick in his mouth? Because it doesn't seem like it's very safe. Like, He's like he's got to at least swallowed one toothpick in his life. He's just a hard nosed. He's just a hard nosed guy, man. And and you know what? He wants to look cool while he's while he's stuffing his hat into someone's mouth. <laughs> so now we see Arthur commandeer the stolen money by order of the Peaky Blinders and give it to Tommy, who in turn plops it down at the Kimber table, where Billy and his accountant Roberts have already taken notice of the two, saying that they've got balls just by showing up. And they didn't just show up. Tommy got to show his worth and make a plea that the blinders become the racetrack security for Billy Kimba. 
because Billy's men are starting to take a cut from the Lees. So here we have another parlay. In return for his security, Tommy's got this all lined up. He wants 5% of the take and three legal betting pitches at every race meeting, essentially leading to the fact that they know the winner of one out of every three races, which is huge for a bookmaker, obviously, and then bumping that up to six after a year based off of satisfaction. Such a cheeky move. Such an incredible decision there. Tommy Shelby, player, coach, general manager, owner. This guy is making every deals. He has sit is rising to six after a year based on satisfaction he's got player options he's ready to opt out of contracts tommy shelby knows how to make a deal man this man is pat riley mixed with george steinbrenner and kimba kimba's ready to negotiate but he wants roberts to do that he wants his accountant to do it he's more interested in dancing with grace so then we get the real uh, chalkboard scratching scenes coming up as kimba goes up to dance with grace tells her that Tommy gave him the right to. And as Tommy and Roberts are negotiating, Kimba comes back and wants to add a small condition because of course he does. He wants two hours alone with Grace. And what does Tommy do? Tommy's a businessman and sometimes it's a business, man. He says yes, essentially offers Grace up, does give Grace an extra three quid for it, doesn't really give her a choice in the matter. And we get the most iconic quote from this entire bloody series coming up here, Josh. Grace says, she, she, she looks pissed, and she goes, you think I'm a hire? And Tom, Tommy has something always to say, and said, everyone's a whole Grace. We just sell different parts of ourselves. Boom. Oh, my God. Oh, it, it gives me, what is, it's, it's just such a true line. It's just so true. The same part, we talked last time where, you know, it's not always a free transaction when you take a girl. And, and even if it's legal and even if it's not prostitution, sometimes, you know, they want to make some money and it happens. And men, they're the same way with business. You know what I mean? It's just it's just such a evergreen statement. A hundred years later, it still matters and it still reigns so true. As he does mention to Grace, you can kick him in the balls whenever you want. Do this and you'll be a part of my organization. We all have to make sacrifices, Josh. And I think also here, when he's the, the part about everyone being a whore and we sell just different parts of ourselves, he means it literally, of course, but also I think it could be a reference to him, to the people selling themselves as whores to, to, to fighting in the war, as that they didn't really have a choice. And, and I really think that this could have a double meaning underlying it. I could be thinking too far into it, but I think... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with it. I'm, I'm just going to run with it because I think that's a really powerful thing just after seeing a very powerful scene of him fighting in the war. I think it always is resonating with him at all times. Bro, give your opinions, Josh. We've got our own podcast. We've got the platform to break down an episode of a TV show. You're allowed to overthink things. Kimba walks over. We see his sad-looking brunette girl and throws her in, says you can have her. And then he does a little side bet, which is just the grossest part of the whole episode. He goes, I bet I'll have her fucked in an hour, which is just, it's just a gross way to say it. There's no way he's going to have this done. Now, this is where I pause it and I write down real quick. There are five minutes left in this episode. Either Stephen Knight's going to have a hell of a cliffhanger or he's going to have to wrap this up quickly. What can he fit into this that will amaze? So what we see, 
is Tommy contemplating in the car, in the stagecoach, as that brunette girl calls Grace a prostitute. Tommy says, I don't really know what she is, to be honest, and then makes up his mind. He barges into Billy Kimba's estate right before one thing's going to happen. Either a rape is going to take place or another murder because Grace is reaching for her gun. Billy Kimba's reaching for her, you know, underwear to rip off. And Tommy, the genius he is, comes up with a story that appeals to everyone's senses. He essentially lets Billy Kimba and his, you know, grotesque pervertness off the hook by saying that Grace has the clap. And you know what? This was a great scene. It was well acted, Josh. No words have to be said. We see in the eye of Billy Kimba, Billy fucking Kimba, that he's like, you know what? This is a good excuse. I'm not going to try to, you know, rape this girl. It was clear that this guy had just been rejected. But we get to see relief from both him and Grace. Because even though she's disgusted, she's still a little relieved that she can get out of this without A, having to shoot someone, or B, getting raped. And I, I watched this scene, and I'm like, okay, I don't think Grace is going to get raped. I really hope she didn't get raped. It wasn't vile, first of all. When you just start putting Billy Kimba in the terrible haircut category, I don't. he has, a, he has like, the, the thing where it's, like, the front of his hair is, like, buzzed, and he has, like, and it's, like, it's, like, peaked in, and it's, like, it's just weird, and I'm not with it. He has man bangs. That's what it is. Yeah, and he has that, like, that, like, it, it looks like a Sharpie mustache, just one line drawn. So Billy Kimber needs to head to 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 hit the barber, hit the stylist. Not looking too hot, but like I did not expect Tommy Shelby to also have that up his sleeve. I didn't expect Billy Kimba to believe him, nor did I think he was really gonna care. Like like I'm sure people back then didn't really care, and Billy Kimber isn't something someone to care. He might already have the clap. Yeah, and I, I think it was more of a uh, it was a it was a way out. It was a it was a hatch to escape from what was a shitty situation for Billy Kimba and the fact that he probably knows he wouldn't be able to fight Tommy if he did say, I don't give a fuck, I still want to have sex with her. So that was weird. Now we have one final scene with Grace and Tommy driving back to Small Heath. Grace kind of pointing out this arc for her. And it's, it's one of those things where it kind of broke down the fourth wall because character arcs are something that we talk about as reviewers of shows and that critics talk about. But Grace is like, can you imagine, can you see where I went in this episode? I went from Lady Sarah of Connemara to a whore with syphilis. And this is where we get to see Grace change her mind mid-conversation. Because she starts to call out Tommy for being a bastard, for being a fuka, and then she says, but you changed your mind. Why did you change your mind? We don't get an answer, though. The scene ends... How our last episode began with Thomas's black car driving down the road with red right hands starting to play, luscious green trees surrounding it. I, I mean, South England looks gorgeous when you're not in Asheville territory. And as we say goodbye to episode three, we say farewell to a fantastic director, Otto Bathurst. I wish you well. You haven't had any gems since you directed episode three back in 2013. but. Three fucking great episodes for Otto Bathurst as we wrap this uh, this podcast up. Any final thoughts from this episode, Josh? That was a wild final eight minutes. Four words. Give me episode four. I need it now. We need to break down episode four. Like, this episode really sets up episode four in a tremendous way. We're three episodes into the show, and so much has happened. Like, I can't even 
we could talk for hours about these next these last three episodes. Not not just what we have in these podcasts, but so much is happening. And we're halfway through the season. I am such a fan of the six-episode format, so you guys can keep an eye out for episode four. It'll be dropping in the next few days. Hit subscribe, press follow, like us on Facebook.com slash Peaky Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at By Order of Peaky. We love, love, love the feedback, so keep it coming on social media, by messaging, by inboxing us, whatever you want to do, or you can just straight up email us. B-O-O-T, peakyblinders at gmail.com. He's Josh, I'm Daniel, and we binge so you don't have to. Talk to you again soon, you wankers! We are never coming back Past the square, past the bridge, past the mills, past the stacks On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man In a dusty black coat with a red right hand